Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And apologies to Anne for finishing her program a little abruptly. It was all my fault, so not Anne at all. And um, anyway, it's time for Tuesday Home Time. Today, Pacific News and Views with Nick McClellan, part two of the report from Western Sahara, Kate Lewis, Life in Sudan and the Journey to Australia with Aziza Hussein, and a first-hand experience of life in occupied Palestine with Kate Wenigal. But first, Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane Listener, when despite the odd criticism we may have of the caring business class, we have to admire their unswerving commitment to the principles of laissez-faire market forces, competition policy on the great level playing field of world's best practice, the super-efficiency of the private sector, principles and principle. The firm belief based on fact that business is the business of business. Government has no role in the market, especially if the government is involved in a little money earner, albeit a basic government service, then that service is no business of government. The private sector will run it so much more efficiently, save the community and the government just trillions. And as I say, we admire them for their dedication to that principle, their hatred of anything that looks remotely like the dead hand of socialism. Government, leave business to us. Then I'm just a little confused, and I have a strong feeling we'll all feel just a little confused when, as the impact of climate change that isn't climate change, combined with coronavirus, which is coronavirus, sees the stock exchange crash, and our master stock exchange in New York collapse due to viral panic, we find caring employers are so concerned about their workers who may have to take time off or quarantine themselves for a couple of weeks, they insist these workers be paid by the government, the inefficient bloated handoff. But, 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 but what about market forces, laissez-faire competition? Well, the market is 100% behind this necessary initiative, intervention by government, and it must not be, must not, uh, be laissez-faire if we had to pay the workers for bludging at home or grossly laissez-unfair if we did have to pay. And this stimulates the competition between our workers, many of whom are not our workers but little individual businesses enjoying the benefits of laissez-faire market forces competition policy. Right, when we hear it explained so lucidly by the experts, we have to wonder why we even bother to think about economic matters, don't we? They're they're so complicated and we're so naive. For instance, I asked the Chamber of Profits, how come caring employers made profit from these little individual businesses but had no responsibility for their non-entitlements? Because through the goodness of our heart, we give them the chance to obtain business for their business. Although the caring business class government has expressed concern for these workers who aren't workers. Concerned they they have no sick leave, for instance, which is interesting again because... 
The same government is running a case appealing a federal court decision that these workers were entitled to conditions like sick leave. The government accusing them of double dipping. But at the moment it looks like there's going to be a hell of a lot more than just double dipping into the inefficient public coffers in the months ahead. We also know caring employers act at all times with integrity, unlike those who have forced the caring employers and government to introduce the smash the evil unions and evil union bosses integrity bill. And to show how evil they are, the evil workers are so evil, they are even diabolical while taking protected action, and surely that very limited concession should be removed. Why should they be allowed to take industrial action at all, interrupt productivity, but... Last week, the evil, evil, evil CFMEU was fined half a million because it abused the protected action privilege by picketing and preventing scabs, or sorry, that's an illegal term, preventing good workers who just want to do more than a fair day's work for less than a fair day's pay and goods entering the site. One truck driver said they even, wait for this, even banged on his truck. And a unionist was fined 13000 something for calling one of the good workers a scab. Indeed, I think it's worse. I think he said an effing scab. I reckon these uncouth criminals with no respect for the law got off light at only half a mil. On the other hand, respect for the law. Proving we don't need a good, caring, business class, integrity bill, caring employers who owe billions, literally billions, in unpaid superannuation, including the deductions from their workers' wages, getting a bit mixed up with their profits, an offence with massive penalties, including being fined the amount they stole, or, or sorry, inadvertently got mixed up with their own wealth, millions of dollars, and this is wonderful news for these poor, caring employers. Well, not as poor as their non-caring workers, perhaps, but wonderful news they have been granted an amnesty by the government, a promise they won't be prosecuted for inadvertently getting their workers' money mixed up with. Because good caring employers are not evil like those workers. Uh, did I mention the evil CFMEU got fined half a mil for calling good workers scabs and picketing a caring employer? And the supremo of Deliveroo and Be Exploited is just so concerned about Be Exploited, he has called on the government to pass new industrial relations laws. We are seeing governments around the world plan to introduce modern legislation which is fit for this modern economy, combining the flexibility of on-demand work, which people want, with the security they deserve, Ed McMakers Money pleaded. Now, a little suggestion, Ed. Why wait for legislation if you're so concerned about your gig workers? Why not? <laughs> Here's the suggestion, Ed. Just do it. Oh, sorry, it's the government's responsibility to pay for them now if... After it was disclosed that uh, information given to Parliament about the sports rorts, which, which weren't sports rorts affair, wasn't quite the whole story, the new sports rorts, which aren't sports rorts, Minister Richard Cutback Rorts said he didn't see his earlier comment as lying to the Senate. I saw it as putting a different view, he explained, proving once again that life for satirists is becoming more and more difficult. And the former minister, budget for marginals, McConning, angrily denied she had submitted more rorts, or sorry, grants, after the election was called. We didn't have to, she said. 
We'd already done it all. Ditto with this headline arising out of the Crook Casino inquiry. Casino self-regulation doesn't work. Gee, who would have thought? What's wrong with putting the policing of money laundering, problem gambling, integrity generally in this industry of integrity in the hands of Jamie Puker? After all, he's one of True Blue Aussie's richest people, thanks to his mum conceiving him. Therefore, a man of integrity. We recall last year the fossil industry calling for the smelling salts after the head of the New South Wales Environment Court, Justice Preston, refused a coal mine licence because of its climate change impacts, including the Scope 3 impacts, that is, the pollution created by the customers, local or overseas, one of three cases which upset the poor fossils over primary and Scope 3 impacts. Thankfully, the New South Wales government is attempting to fix up the mess by making it illegal to take applicants' pollution into account. In other words, making it illegal for the Environment Court to consider the environment. Although South 32, coal mining offshoot of our proud True Blue Aussie icon, BHP, bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter, is still concerned just in case. Many industries could be affected if Scope 3 emissions become a pivotal part of project approvals. If, if it comes into the planning process, it has an impact not just on mining, but on roads, airports and anything you can think about. Uh, CEO Graham Care for Profits warned, showing what a great man he is, looking for the, the big picture and showing his powers for thinking about we need clear guidance, he said. Well, Graham, we can help you there. Flog coal to a steel mill in China, for instance, and you have to take responsibility for the pollution that will generate. Simple as that, Graham. Graham? Graham? Oh, dear. Look, look. we know there's a run on lots of products over this coronavirus panic, like toilet paper, but with the poor fossil industry, there's going to be a huge run on smelling salts. Graham? No, he's out to the world. No idea why there's a rush on toilet paper, but it certainly uh, opens the way for the usual array of very crude and obvious so-called jokes. So I won't bore you with any of them, listener, because I know it would give you the shits. One of the great resource fossil giants, Rio Tinto the Planet, has announced it will spend $1 billion over the next five years on climate initiatives. One billion over five years. What won't that make a huge dent in its profits? But on the other hand, it's nothing compared to what they've made over decades stuffing up the environment in the first place, creating the problem. It too will appreciate the New South Wales initiative to make it illegal for environmental assessments to consider the environment. After all, it's outrageous that we can go into an environmental assessment process in good faith and not have the project approved. It's unthinkable. And finally, if that isn't outrageously unthinkable or unthinkably outrageous enough, it gets worse. Last week, the Court of Appeal in Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country refused to allow a third runway at Heathrow because of its environmental impact, that it was contrary to that country's Paris commitments. Although that also offers some ray of light through the smog for fossil applicants here, it's hard to imagine a proposal that could be contrary to True Blue Aussie's Paris commitment. Good afternoon.
And that's Mr. Kevin Healy, and he's got a commitment to be here at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning for the long-running City Limits. In the studio with me now is journalist, researcher, author, Nick McClellan, and we'll start off today with a Professor Blacksland from Canberra. Who is he? John Blacksland's been a long-time intelligence officer. He was in uh, military intelligence, and uh, you know he's been very much part of the, you know, the the state in in Australia. For example, he was chosen to write the uh, some of the volumes of the official history of ASIO. So he's very much a man of at the centre of uh, intelligence and security debates in Canberra. And most recently, he's teaching uh, in the intelligence and security sector, intelligence studies at uh, ANU and in a recent edition of the magazine Australian Foreign Affairs he put forward a proposal that has had some currency around you know security circles in Canberra for some time but he's really articulated it very clearly and he's proposed that Australia should sign what are called compacts of free association with four Pacific states that some of the smaller states Tuvalu, Nauru, Kiribati and surprisingly Tonga. And this idea of a compact of free association is something that comes out of international law, particularly in the area of decolonisation. Historically, when uh, countries can move to a referendum on independence, a referendum on self-determination, they can choose different statuses. People can choose to stay with the colonial power. Most countries obviously don't want to do that, but that's an option. They can move to full sovereign political independence, and become a freestanding member of the United Nations General Assembly. Or they have what are are described as compacts, agreements of free association, and so a country moving to a new political status might agree to freely associate with its former colonial power. You have a situation uh, that exists in the Pacific with, say, the Marshall Islands or the Federated States of Micronesia. They have compacts of free association with the United States, that administered them um, during the colonial period, and that means that the U.S. has influence over defence and foreign policy, security policy. Um, So the Marshall Islands has its own parliament, has its own president and government. It's a member of the United Nations, but the U.S. essentially has veto over certain aspects of defence and foreign policy. So they're relatively small nations. That's true, and there are examples around the region, New Zealand, has relationships with Niue and the Cook Islands, for example. Now, there's only about 18,000 people in the Cook Islands, and Niue is a population of 1,200. So these are often countries that don't have the resources to have their own armed forces, for example, and so they might choose to ally themselves with their former colonial power to provide security in various ways. They may not have representation at the United Nations. Uh, Cook Islands, for example, doesn't have UN membership, so New Zealand speaks on their behalf in, the international, in some international fora. In others, they're active um, you know, in their own right, say on climate and things. But the, the weird thing is about Blacksland's proposal, there's no examples that I can think of of countries that have been fully independent that go back to compacts of free association. Colonies may choose this as they move towards political independence, feeling we can't manage all our own affairs. But there aren't examples of countries saying, oh, we're fully independent, members of the UN, got our own defence policy, our own foreign policy, but let's move to shared governance with Canberra. And 
I think that, you know, there's a number of flaws in this sort of proposal, and you have to wonder why it's being put forward by someone like Blacksland, who has very deep connections to the foreign affairs establishment, the security establishment in Australia. And why these four countries? The four countries is based on a sort of colonial carve-up of the Pacific that, that goes back some time. When it comes to migration policy, one feature of statehood in the Pacific has often been that countries can get migration rights to their former colonial power. So the compact states in the northern Pacific, Marshall Islands, Federated States, Micronesia, Palau, have migration rights into the United States, particularly to Guam and Hawaii, their Pacific dependencies. New Zealand, Samoa, former New Zealand colony, Cook Islands, Niue, people have rights to access New Zealand through migration. Similarly, the French territories, well, they're French citizens, you know, so the French colonies in the Pacific, like French Polynesia and New Caledonia, are French citizens, so they have migration rights to mainland France. But Kiribati, a country of about 100,000 people, Tuvalu and uh, Nauru, both small countries, only about 11,000 people each, don't have colonial power. England was the colonial power, um, Australia in Nauru. And so, similarly, Tonga was an independent kingdom. Tonga was never formally colonised. It became a British protectorate. But the Kong and Tongan constitution came in you know, 1875, more than a century. So the Tongan monarchy has been there for a long time as an independent state. In fact, the Tongans had a constitution about 100 years before we ever got round to giving one in to Papua New Guinea in 1975 when PNG became an independent state. A bit of a grab bag, this proposal from Blacksland, that these four countries that have limited migration rights, and it, it's stupid on that basis, Tongans are everywhere. <laughs> you know, there are Tongans in Australia, in New Zealand, in the United States. Um, the Tongans have what are called transnational networks of kin. Tongans have been a, a people of migration for a long time. They don't just come to Australia. So why would the Tongan monarchy and government give up their own independent governance to share it um, with Australia. He sort of jumbles together these countries without really looking at their independent history and so on. So it's a very colonialist or indeed neo-colonialist mentality. You just see these small states out there, perceive them as vulnerable, and so you, you say, well, Australia will step in and have shared governance that Australia, Australia's military will patrol their exclusive economic zones. But he's um, not the only one who's put forward this, is he? This idea's been around for a while. Um, you know, it goes back to, to the Howard era when Howard talked about a single Pacific community, um, even with a, with a single currency, um, the idea that everyone in the Pacific would take up the Australian dollar. Now, a couple of countries do already. Kiribati and Tuvalu both use the Australian dollar as their currency, and the Nauru, so those countries already do use the Australian dollar. But there are many other countries that have their own. Vanuatu has the Vatu, PNG the Kina, Fiji, its own Fijian dollar, and so on. So the notion that countries would give up their own reserve bank, their own central bank, to allow the Reserve Bank of Australia to govern their economy is a very big step, and that idea never really got off the ground. Kevin Rudd, when he became... Prime Minister in 2007, proposed what he called Pacific Partnerships for Development and Security. Interesting terms. Those were agreements between our aid agency and the government of various countries, most Pacific countries, where Australia would provide aid and development assistance, some, some uh, uh, military assistance, and in return, 
the governments would bring about changes in their own policies. This was most clearly seen in Nauru, when under both Howard and then uh, subsequent Labor governments, the detention centres were opened up. The agreements, um, which were hidden at the time, but a couple of us got copies of them, and I've written about this uh, in Overland or in 2013. The agreements between Australia and Nauru allowed for Australia to demand key policy changes around things like their banking system, uh, their finance system, the introduction of user pays to basic services like water and electricity, so quite neoliberal austerity agenda. Australia in the mid-2000s had put in a number of senior officials into Nauru. So at one point, the Secretary of Finance, the Secretary of Public Works, uh, the Secretary of Education and the Federal Police Commissioner were all Australians. They were Nauru government appointees, but they were Australians, seconded from various people. So the Australian Federal Police seconded a guy to be Nauru's police commissioner and so on. And that's not the only country, is it, that's happened? There are other examples of, of, of this where Australia has set conditions, and that was very much Rudd. And Rudd revitalised this idea in an article in February last year, February 2019, where he explicitly proposed the idea um, of compacts. The rhetoric that it's put forward is these are countries that are vulnerable to climate change. These are countries that in the future, because they're low-lying atoll countries, some of them, not Tonga, uh, they might need migration rights to other places if people are are displaced by the adverse effects of climate change. So Australia should be magnanimous and and, and help them. That's the way it's sold. What's the line of the Australian government now? Well, the line of the Australian government is well, it's a very interesting idea, but it's very much being driven, I think, not by you know generousness about climate change, but about China. And one of the great fears is that China, through its growing economic, trade, financial links with small island states, will gain strategic influence, not just political influence in future decades and the idea of a compact of free association is that the carrot of greater migration rights is offered to these small countries in return for Australia being able to maintain its existing policy of strategic denial to keep out hostile forces. Last century it was the Russians, this century it's the Chinese, potentially other forces which are perceived as threatening the Australian state and the Australian security. So this idea of compacts is being floated from everyone, from Kevin Rudd to a guy called Greg Colton, an Australian Defence Force uh, colonel who uh, wrote about this in 2017, um, this idea that these small states would give up control of their own defence and foreign policy uh, in many aspects. Shared governance is the term, but it really it means Australia calling the shots. And in return, we would give migration rights to them, potentially citizenship. Kevin Rudd talked about the need for constitutional change in all four countries, Kiribati, Tuvalu, Nauru and Australia, to enable this to happen. It's an astounding notion. It's a classically neo-colonial notion that you know, other countries should change their constitution in order to get Australian citizenship. Frankly, the racism of it is, is striking in that the current political class in, in, in Australia is incapable of changing the constitution to give voice to Torres Strait Islanders, to Aboriginal peoples. Um, you know, the demand that's come out of the Uluru statement for voice, for truth, for treaty, a treaty in Australia, and Australia bipartisan failure 
to address the demands coming from indigenous peoples in Australia, so how the hell are we going to get Tongans and Kiribati and others to change their constitution to do this? So there's a certain amount of wishful thinking about this and the belief that, that people will be so desperate because of the adverse effects of climate change, so desperate to want to move that they'll be willing to give up their sovereignty. And it's a fairly nasty calculation. And it's basically driven not by, I would argue, particularly an analysis about people's needs, but about fear of China. And the obvious thing to say is, if there is this vulnerability, if there is a need to open up for migration, given we're only talking about small numbers of of people, why not just do it now? Why not create a pathway to citizenship for people from these countries? You know, seasonal workers who come from those countries after coming here for a few years could have a pathway to citizenship. There is no pathway to citizenship under our seasonal worker programs, our Pacific Labor Scheme. You come, you do the work, then you go home. Why not now create a pathway to citizenship or have dual citizenship to allow people to move backwards and forwards and over time build up the capacity to come and live and work in Australia? One obvious point is many people, firstly, one, don't want to move, and secondly, if they were going to move, would rather move to a neighbouring Pacific country rather than to Australia. So there's this logic that everyone just wants to come to Australia, you know, we're the magnet for for democracy and uh, high values and things. Now, sure, a lot of Pacific Islanders would love to come, but not everyone. And so this notion that, that, you know, the carrot of citizenship in Australia is just for those countries and not for countries closer to us, There's an awful lot of poor people in Papua New Guinea, but Blacksland in his article explicitly says this is not for Papua New Guinea. You know, there's 8, nearly 10 million people there. We don't want them. We just want the little countries. The neo-colonial edge in this stuff is astounding, yet it's got currency. We're former prime ministers like Rudd. We're the people from the Australian Defence Force. We're senior intelligence guys, um, now academics, uh, tossing this idea around. There's currently a parliamentary inquiry into Australia's relations with the region. And Blacksland and others have put in submissions floating this idea. And I suspect it will be picked up. And it's, it's worrying. And it's worrying for two reasons. One of them is about the military aspect. One of them is about the climate aspect. Well, the climate one's pretty obvious. Well, the Australians' reaction to climate change. Yeah, look, you know, Tuvalu, successive prime ministers have said the real why Australia can help the Pacific with climate change is to reduce its emissions. Former Prime Minister Anneli Sopoanga, um, current Prime Minister Katano, Nasano, have said very clearly, we want Australia to begin urgently the transition away from using fossil fuels. No more new coal mines. No more coal-fired power stations. And so they see the Australian government funding a feasibility study into a coal-fired power station in uh, North Queensland to keep Matt Canavan happy. Um, And they say, this is not the way. And I think the notion that we'll just take people from three or four four small, vulnerable Pacific states is frankly madness. Because once we get to a stage where people are forced to relocate from atoll nations... Climate change will be, the adverse effects of climate change will be devastating much larger areas. The Nile Delta, the Yangtze Delta, the Ganges Delta, the Mekong Delta, these major rice bowls, food bowls, agricultural centres for much more populous nations than Tuvalu and Kiribati will be affected. 
let alone the Thames Valley and Miami. Has not the bushfires really raised awareness in government circles that this is not just about Tuvalu and Kiribati, this is about a global challenge. By the time that the people of Tuvalu really need to relocate, so will millions of people in Asia. And do you think Australia's policy is we'll just let in 11,000 Tuvaluans and we won't let in millions of people from Asia? Like, it's madness. It's just madness, and it's an excuse not to address the challenge of climate change. It's saying all this propaganda that's coming out of the Pacific, saying we want you to act on coal. Don't worry, guys. We'll provide a safe haven for you, refuge for you. Not all of you. Not the Papua New Guineans, whose food bowl in the highlands is being devastated by drought. Not people of Vanuatu. Bad luck for you. Just the little guys, so we can control the numbers. And also maybe just shut them up. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Scott Morrison can come to the forum and not be monstered, as he was last year, by Pacific leaders saying, don't talk to us just about the adaptation funding that Australia provides, which is very important, but change your policies on things like loss and damage. Australia has fought against the idea that countries should be compensated for the loss and damage of existing cyclones, disasters, storm surges, floods. OECD countries don't want liability. They're the ones who are generating industrialised countries generating significant amounts of climate change together with China and India um, through their emissions. You know, we'll just provide adaptation funding. We won't address the source of the problem, which is the need to rapidly decarbonise the atmosphere. It's the notion that we'll just continue business as usual when it comes to climate policy and we'll just pick up the pieces in the Pacific. And it's a frankly evil sort of attitude and it's understandably rejected by most Pacific Islanders. The military complex. Well, this is very much tied to this broader question about fear of China because in some ways we're all, we already have a compact light. As I say... Kevin Rudd, more than a decade ago, brought in what they called these Pacific Partnerships for Development and Security, and the linking of the two was very significant. We'll provide development assistance, but we'll also guarantee security. And the obvious question is, whose security? Whose definition of security? And one of the things we've seen from the Pacific uh, Island neighbours is they have a different emphasis on security. Yes, people are concerned about all sorts of traditional security challenges, coups and conflict, transnational crime and drug smuggling. Uh, you know, these are very much on the regional agenda in the Pacific. But Pacific leaders in 2018 at the Pacific Islands Forum brought forward the Boy Declaration, um, which said we want an expanded notion of security that encompasses human security, environmental security, and indeed security from the adverse effects of climate change. And it said... In direct quote, the greatest single threat to security, the greatest single threat to the security, well-being and livelihoods of people in the Pacific is climate change. And obviously if that's the greatest single threat, then larger neighbours like Australia, donor countries, should be putting more resources into the greatest single threat. But what we're seeing is a lot more energy and finance going into the perceived security threat that Australia faces, which is China. At the expense of proper aid. At the expense of aid. This is Tuesday Home Time on 3CR, and I'm speaking with journalist, researcher and author Nick McClellan. And indeed, there's a whole debate about where our aid program's going. 
we've seen, uh, you know, significant money going to the Pacific by slashing all aid to Africa, pretty much, and by cutting severely aid to Southeast Asia. You know, the Indonesian president and vice president were complaining the other day that Australia's halved the aid budget to Indonesia, even though it's still a relatively poor country, um, as they've increased money to the Pacific. But the distribution of that money going to the Pacific has been quite skewed. You know, the government set up its $2 billion Australian infrastructure finance facility for the Pacific, which is basically to compete with the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is a Chinese-dominated investment bank. Our infrastructure is better than their infrastructure, so a couple of billion dollars has gone into that. Aid money for health budgets into the Pacific has dropped 36% in recent years. At a time of COVID-19, it's madness. And yet these sort of priorities are driven by Australia's security. Australia's security, not Pacific Island security, by and large. There are obvious positive contributions. You know, Australia's aid is really important and should be expanded, um, but it should be targeted at community need, basic needs around health and education and agriculture and livelihoods, but it's being driven by a very different agenda. And you see a lot of money going into this security sector. You know, Australia has created uh, a national security college, which is currently based at ANU, National Security College for the Pacific. So we'll be training Pacific officials on security. Whose definition of security? Interesting discussion. Australia has created a Pacific Fusion Centre, which is a real-time intelligence network um, that's used to track movements across the Pacific. Quite valuable if it's controlled by the Pacific to look at things like illegal fishing and monitoring illegal fishing boats. But obviously uh, it has broader security and strategic interests, uh, potentially. And so Australia is putting a lot of money into this Fusion Centre. Once again, dual use, quite useful for tracking illegal fishing, but there are other purposes. Massive amounts of resources going into military training and cooperation programs, funding the Black Rock military camp in Fiji, for example, proposals by Australia and the United States to expand the naval base at Lombrum, which is currently big enough for a couple of patrol boats, but uh, Manus Harbour, very huge deep water harbour, um, Seadlia Harbour in Manus Island, um, there's proposals to build up Lombrum Naval Base there with US and Australian funding. A lot more Defence Corporation Program uh, work. Our CDF, uh, Commander of the Defence Forces, Angus Campbell, just recently toured the Pacific, went to New Caledonia and has expanded um, cooperation between the Australian Defence Force and the French Army, which doesn't go down very well with Canucks, given that New Caledonia is moving to a referendum on independence in uh, September this year to see the Australian Defence Force and uh, another forces um, expanding their training programs for Pacific Island armies. Um, So there's a lot of military strategic stuff going on, and the dominant feature of that is we should be training Fijian troops, not the Chinese. We should be providing security briefings to the Pacific, not the Chinese. So I, I would argue that this compact idea is driven not so much by an altruistic sense that we should be providing displacement opportunities and citizenship rights for Pacific Islanders. It's not a bad idea. Um, We should try it, maybe now, rather than wait 20 years. But I would argue it's more driven by the security interests of the ANZUS Alliance and um, keeping China out of the region. What's been the reaction from the four countries? People have been pretty quiet about it because they they don't want to give credit to it, frankly, but I think it needs to be knocked on the head. (laughs) Former President Anote Tong came out 
and said it was an idea worth looking at. But Tong, who's now out of office, been replaced by Tenes Mamao at the last elections. Noti Tong's always been very big on this idea of what was called migration with dignity. His policy was, you know, we should be looking at opportunities for Ikiribas to migrate to Australia, New Zealand, United States and other places to gain uh, particularly education and training, which would help, uh, and so on. It's worth remembering, of course, that Noti Tong is very strongly aligned with Taiwan, as are both Tuvalu and Nauru. Until uh, uh, recently, Kiribati was aligned with Taiwan, one of the six states in the Pacific until this year that supported Taiwan. Tong's father was a refugee from communist China uh, in the 1950s, soon after you know, Mao Zedong and, and the Communist Party won their victory in China in 1949. Tong Ting-hai fled from uh, China through Hong Kong and ended up on Fanning Island, which is part of Kiribati today, running the cable and wireless network. And Oti Tong grew up there. It was right next to where the British were doing their nuclear testing in the 1950s um, on Christmas Island. So is this connection with Taiwan one of the reasons why these four countries have been chosen? Yeah, that's part of the, the thing, that, that Nauru and Tuvalu are amongst um, t- Taiwan's strongest backers in the region. Tonga used to be until the King of Tonga wanted to become a member of the UN General Assembly, take his kingdom into the UN General Assembly, and he needed Chinese support. China, having veto power on the Security Council, could have blocked that. And so some years ago, Tonga switched from Taiwan. Similarly, this year, the new government of Tanes Mamao has um, switched from um, uh, Taiwan to China, also following the Solomon Islands, which has done so. At the beginning of the year, there were uh, six friends of Taiwan, now there's only four. So this is partly, this compact idea is partly driven by this sense that the, the Western Alliance is losing ground in the region. I think uh, that's a big driver, this, this perception that China is advancing steadily in the region through aid, through particularly commercial investment with uh, Chinese corporations, often state-owned corporations, investing in some countries in the region, and um, particularly uh, Chinese loans. And there's a lot of talk about what's called debt trap diplomacy, that China will give so much money through soft loans and then one day might call in those loans and the way to do it would say, well, give us control of a port. And that's perceived by the hardheads in Washington and in Canberra as a way that China might gain naval access to the region and that would, of course, upset the balance. And there's a debate in Canberra. You know, someone like Hugh White, who's a, a major security analyst and thinker, uh, has written books about the defence of Australia. He says, you can't keep the Chinese out. Let's just, you know, not even bother trying. If they set up a base in the Pacific, we should just have long-range missiles to target it and blow the shit out of it if push comes to shove. I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically his argument, that he is on the, the side of the, the debate in Canberra that, um, you know, China is a rising power. It's economically tied to countries across the region, including Australia and New Zealand. Chinese economic influence is a a feature of decades to come, despite problems with the coronavirus and their shadow banking and all the rest. So we've got to learn to live with it. And if they were to set up a military base in the Pacific, we should just target it, and at the first sign of trouble, we should just blow it up. I mean, read his book. I'm using more blunt language than he does, but that's what he says, that there's no way of keeping the Chinese out. Others... Peter Jennings from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute and many other conservatives argue the opposite, 
that we have to keep this as our patch. Those are the words of Scott Morrison. The Pacific is our yeah. patch. Why should it be our patch? Um, well, it's a neocolonial attitude. That, and and you, you have to go back decades. In the 1980s, uh, there was a wonderful book written by um, Peter Hayes and Lubazowski called American Lake, and it described the Pacific as an American lake. And this was one of the outcomes of the Second World War, where as Japan advanced through the islands of the Pacific, reaching Papua New Guinea, reaching into Nauru and other places, Americans were deployed, based in Australia and New Caledonia, to fight their way back through the islands. And so the Battle of Guadalcanal, the Coral Sea Battle, you know, the invasion of Tarawa, um, Peleliu, and, you know, America, American troops, young American boys, shed lots of blood to fight their way through the islands. So the Americans wanted to maintain the islands as a strategic area. So immediately after the war, the islands of Micronesia, these are the northern Pacific countries, Kiribati, Marshall Islands and so on, the northern Pacific countries were taken as a UN trusteeship and it was the only UN strategic trusteeship established after the Second World War. So it was called the Trust Territory of the Pacific Islands. It was run by the U.S. Navy, not the U.S. government, but the U.S. Navy for decades. What's today, the Marshall Islands, the Federated States of Micronesia and Palau were all under the control of the U.S. Navy for many decades. Indeed, Hawaii was under U.S. Naval Administration until 1959, till it got statehood in 1959, and the Yanks could see the winds of change coming with the mood for decolonization. But right up into the 80s and 90s, the notion was that the Pacific, uh, both North and South Pacific, was an American lake, and Australia and New Zealand were delegated to control the South Pacific while the US controlled the Northern Pacific from Hawaii through the Micronesian Islands to Guam, the spearhead of its military forces. And Guam, a third of the land, as we've talked about, is military bases. Very expensive to maintain that. You know, there's been a lot of debate in America about whether you, re, you know, maintain the post-war network of bases and that included a whole lot of stuff in Okinawa, included a whole lot of stuff in South Korea after the Korean War, and a whole lot of stuff in Japan as well. And so we're seeing moves to restructure that to a certain extent. So getting stuff out of Okinawa because of long-time citizen protests, there were plans to bring about 5,000 Marines and their families into Guam, which is causing a lot of ructions in Guam. And so they're now being rotated through northern Australia because it's very difficult to get... They originally wanted to send 8,000 Marines to Guam. People in Guam wouldn't wear that. So uh, Marine regiments and battalions are being rotated through Northern Territory. Um, so we're part of this network. There's recently proposals for American B-52 bombers to be based at, at Tyndall Air Base in the Northern Territory for more of the year. Not based there, sorry, we don't call them bases, but to be rotated through Northern Territory. So there's a whole base network and the problem is, if the Chinese get into this region, as they are doing economically, um, there's a paranoia that, that what was an American lake is now slipping out of their control, uh, slipping out of the control of ANZUS. And there's a lot of criticism in Washington that Australia is not pulling its weight. New Zealand's always been, you know, full of Cubans. They went anti-nuclear in 1987, let us not forget. But Australia is being seen as not doing its job. And they've dropped the ball. Uh, you know, there's, you read the Washington think tanks, they feel that there's a need to step up. So the Yanks have been doing that. Donald Trump invited the three presidents 
of the freely associating states in the North Pacific, Marshall Islands, FSM and Palau, to come to the White House. Never before had all three freely associating leaders come to the White House to be met by a sitting president. Unprecedented. They've now appointed a White House security specialist for Oceania. Never had that before in the National Security Council in the White House. So the Americans are taking this pretty seriously, and that pressure's coming on Australia. And you see it with Huawei a few years ago. Uh, the Chinese corporation Huawei was offering to build an internet submarine cable to um, Solomon Islands. And uh, Australia stepped up and said, no, we'll, we'll do it. We'll pay for it. And we've since seen bans on Huawei technology being used in Australia and the United States. Boris Johnson, strangely, has allowed Huawei as a corporation to roll out some of its 5G technology in the United Kingdom. And you, you know, listen to the squawks coming out of Washington about that. Um, the, the perception that the Brits are not doing the right thing by the Five Eyes Alliance, which is Australia, New Zealand, Canada, US and Britain. And that's a, a strategic intelligence surveillance network that's been established since the Second World War. And the Brits are now perceived as not doing the right thing um, by letting Huawei into the chicken coop. It's a funny old world we live in. But the bottom line is, these sorts of ideas are touted as solutions. Australia can solve the problems of the Pacific by having a compact where we will guarantee them the right to run away when they start going glug, glug, glug under the waves. It's just an excuse not to do anything about climate change, driven by fear of China, I would argue, rather than true altruism to vulnerable peoples in the region. And if it really was about helping indigenous peoples, vulnerable peoples in the region, we'd have a really, really good climate policy to the Pacific. We'd be funding the Green Climate Fund, which this government refuses to do. We'd have a policy about a just transition for Australians living in the coal area, in the Latrobe Valley, in the Hunter Valley, in areas where coal is a major part of the economy now. Where's the just transition plans for these areas? Where's the government action to retrain people, to put money into TAFE, to provide socially useful production in new industries? You don't see much of it. People in the Pacific watch what's going on in Australia and they understand why these ideas are being put forward. It's to allow business as usual. Business as usual in security policy, business as usual in climate policy. Not surprisingly, not a lot of people buying the idea. And thanks to Nick McClellan, writer, editor, researcher, all those things, very clever. And here we're back in another month's time for more issues about the Pacific. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change. Next part two of my interview with Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association, looking at issues affecting the people of the occupied country, Western Sahara. From Morocco, in one instance, to futsal. Now, I don't know how many people know what futsal is. I do, because my grandsons played it for many years. Right. It's an uh, indoor, hard-court, five-a-side game, but it's based on soccer. 
I guess it's much more accessible for a lot of people because they don't have to have a big ground in countries where it's very hot or very cold. They can be inside. So, yeah, this is another international game that has its own cup, World Cup, but the 2020 Africa Cup of Nations was hosted by Morocco. Morocco has been jockeying for years to have the big soccer World Cup and they got pipped to the post by South Africa some years ago and they've never liked South Africa since then. (laughs) I mean, not that they did before, I don't think. This time they they managed to... uh, to host it, but where did they decide to hold the the game? That they are doing it in their so-called southern provinces, that is Western Sahara. So uh, the, the, the Saharawis, of course, then had another, yet another reason to get out in the streets and demonstrate and protest. Some of the countries refused to participate, and South Africa was one of those. And I believe that, I've actually forgotten whether it was Mauritius or Madagascar, withdrew their team. Their team had already signaled that it would take part, but, or, or even gone there, but they had to, had to withdraw. And I don't know about others. The whole place went into lockdown because they had a big, as soon as the Saharawis get at all active, the security forces are out there in force. There are four or five different security forces as well as the police and the gendarmerie. One particular human rights activist's family was completely under siege. There was continual presence of cars outside the house and intimidation of various kinds. Posted a video of the police coming and knocking on the door and these women giving them a lot of cheek and saying... Uh, okay, arrest us, you know, do what you like, beat me, do you want to beat me? Being very cheeky and, and when they finally decided to walk away, they were shouting Viva Polisario, Sahara Libre and Labadi, Labadi, which is, that means they will never give up, no surrender sort of thing. That same family, uh, Hassana Dui, has recently, uh, more recently than that, this was the 12th of February that that thing happened. Now on the 28th of February he's issued another statement about the expulsion of a Spanish delegation who wanted to come. There are various politicians, Spanish funds and support, aid and support for Western Sahara. There were eight people in this in this delegation, and they were turned around at the airport. Not the first time. Not the first time, but it's uh, yeah the most recent one that I've heard about. Something else in common with Israel—that's what they like to do to the people who want to come in and support the Palestinians. They stop them at the stop them at the crossing and take right. them home. Right. Okay. Yes. Well, that's it. Exactly. Exactly. So, Human Rights Watch comment. You know, on the on the human rights dire state of human rights in Morocco and Western Sahara. But and of course the Human Rights Watch people can't get in, can they? Or can they? I'm not sure. They do, you know, they blow hot and cold on these people. They do it just enough so that they can't be blamed for never doing it. 
but they don't make it easy. I haven't remembered whether this particular report is based on on the grounds uh, observations or simply on other reports. I'd imagine that the 219 Human Rights Watch report is not much different to previous ones. Oh, no, not. I don't think so. I think it's pretty much uh, the sort of thing that we've been seeing for, for, for many years, I'm afraid. Now, over to New Zealand, Tech Bar was there late last year mm. and talking to people about the phosphate coming from Western Sahara, which is labelled as Moroccan, and lo and behold... The Moroccans decided they'd have a go and to try and nullify what she said. Is that, that it? I think that's part of it. I think there probably have been some kind of delegations before, but they may not have gone to Christchurch and to other places where the uh, phosphate is handled. It might have been just other aspects of trade. Uh, this time, there's a, now that there's a very active group in Christchurch, they got a protest together with a certain amount of humour and uh, peaceful actions such as flying a Sahrawi flag half-mast to symbolise the regret at the importation of the phosphate and the suffering that the Sahrawi people are enduring under Moroccan rule. And then a rap song got composed and that's the video of that is um, downloadable online. And I think if you go to the uh, Facebook of um, Western Sahara Campaign NZ, you'll probably be able to get both of those things, both a speech made by Josie Butler, who was lead, uh, made a speech about what their action was there for, and the video. That's just like a, a bit of more colourful action over this side of the world. The Western Sahara Resource Watch has brought out uh, its latest edition of... P for Plunder. P for Plunder started oh, about six years ago, I think. The latest one shows a huge dip in the amount of phosphate exported. It roughly halved the previous year. This has to do with, surely, the boycott that Resource Watch has managed to uh, encourage among the former export importers. New Zealand is really the pretty much the only one left. There's a little bit that goes to China. They count the phosphate that goes to India, but it is a subsidiary of the Moroccan phosphate company, OCP, so we don't really count that as uh, separate, you know. And, of course, as you just said, there is phosphate in Morocco as well, but they don't differentiate. They put the two together and say they're all from Morocco. Is that what happens? That's what happens, and so it's actually... Well, it has been hard for us to quantify just how much was coming from Western Sahara until we started. Well, this is what the, the work on the, the PIFA plunder, as I say, about six, five or six years ago, people, or six or seven years ago probably, members of the Resource Watch started monitoring the shipping and then they could tell how many ships were leaving the port because the phosphate is loaded in bulk. So it's very easy to tell which ships are, are taking phosphate. There are, of course, other f ships in the harbour, and they've started tracking other things, such as fish oil that goes to Europe and sand that goes to the beaches of the Canary Islands and also to the building industry in the Canary Islands. And I think they've also put 
some of the Saharawis sand on beaches in Madeira, the Portuguese islands that are a bit further away but still roughly the same general geographic area. Pretty funny when they're exporting sand, I suppose. (laughs) And, of course, phosphate's a finite resource, and although people Mm. are using less of it, the Sahari want want to make sure that some of it's still there for them when they get their independence. Of course, exactly. And and this is it's a very serious incursion into the future economic livelihood of a of a uh, the Saharawis under their own rule if they got their independence. Yes. Well, the struggle goes on and the little groups all around or many places of the world supporting the Sahrawi people including Orsa, including Orsa. Australia Western Sahara Association. We have a website, orsa.org.au, and we have a Facebook page, Western Sahara Down Under, and so you can always get updates on both of those places, see some interesting articles that get written, we post those. The latest postings, I think, are to do with the raising of the flags on the National Day, as well as our little picnic in Melbourne. The group in Sydney raised a flag on the Leichhardt Town Hall, together with the state MP Jamie Parker and the Sahari representative to Australia and New Zealand, Kamal Fadel. I think another official from the council. And here in Melbourne, the Yarra Council... Uh, pledged to raise the flag every year on this day, on the National Day. Although they've got three town halls to pr- choose from, and it has actually, through that the period, uh, over the years, it's been in different ones. Once it was in Fitzroy, then they used to do it at Collingwood, and the last couple of years it's been at Richmond Town Hall on Bridge Road. So it gets a lot more publicity, I think, on, on Bridge Road with the trams going past all the time. So we're very grateful to Yarra Council for their support. And the AWU, yes, who've shown solidarity with the Saharawi people for uh, also for many, many years. And, uh, and other unions have helped, and at times we've also been able to raise it at the Victorian Trades Hall, but I have a feeling it didn't happen this year. I forget why. Thanks, Kate. And that is Kate Lewis from the Australian Western Sahara Association. And coming up to five o'clock, let's hear it from Captain Trash. Ahoy there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St. Kilder. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going, Ah, ah, ah? That stands for reduce, reuse, recycle. And you heard it first on 3C. Colonised by Britain at the turn of the 20th century, Sudan remained a colony for the next 56 years until it gained independence on the 1st of January 1956. Located in northeast Africa, it shares a border with Egypt, Libya to the northwest, Eritrea and Chad to the east. After the independence of South Sudan in 2011, that part has also become the seventh neighbour in the south. 
Isisa Hussain is the presenter of Now Show here at 3CR, broadcast every Tuesday at 7.30pm. I asked her first when she came to Australia. I came to Australia late 2014. Did you come straight from Sudan? Or yes, you? I did, straight yeah. from Sudan. Now, Sudan is a very big country. There is now Sudan and there's South Sudan. Right. Which part were you from? Sudan. So I I find it hardly to say North Sudan because I grown up in Sudan, which is Sudan. We study Sudan. We know Sudan. So for me, I find it hardly to say North Sudan. What do you mean North Sudan? I grown up in Sudan. But the reality is, now um, I can understand, I'm from North Sudan, Khartoum. The capital city? Yes, the capital city. Big city, isn't it? It is a big city, yes. And your family all came from the city? My parents, actually, they, they were, like both died now, they came from north, up north Sudan, in like the border between Su- North Sudan and Egypt. Yes, yeah, so from that area, we call it Halfa. So they came and they just continued their life in uh, Khartoum. Yeah. Were they farmers? No, they, they are not farmers. They, what they are just the middle class, middle class people. So you had the opportunity to get a good education? Yes, I did. I have a free education primary school in Khartoum, the high school and then the university. So lucky, yes. And was that usual for a girl to get up to university? At that time, yes. Yes. It's uh, um, like interesting. It was that I studied veterinary sciences in the University of Khartoum and the number of girls at that time in 90s, uh, in my class, are like almost equal to the number of boys, students. And that was trained because veterinary sciences is usually like uh, known to be type of studies for boys more than girls. And also very clever people. <laughs> Some well, here in Australia, it is very <laughs> clever people. <laughs> yes, because it's a uh, actually not uh, especially for the Khartoum University because it is almost the famous university, not just in Sudan, like even the countries around. So yes, I'm lucky to study. <laughs> did you finish? Yes, I did. And where did you want to use your skills? Government organization. So I started as a vet officer. And then I improved skill to be like extension. We call it extension officer that helped in field work, in vaccination, cattle vaccination and the rural women uh, education in terms of uh, how they can get benefit of success milk uh, during the autumn season. Yeah, so there will be like a access amount of milk. So we learn them how to do, how to make 
ghee or yogurt so get more advantage of this so it was milk. mainly mainly cattle uh, mainly cattle yes what other animals did you have to deal with pets to some extent cats sheep yeah dogs? pets cats and dogs sheep goats Small animals and large animals. Which one did you like best? A cattle. <laughs> Why? <laughs> easy, because the process of like vaccination, easy process of... Um, I think this is because the farmers themselves help the doctor because they look after or they take care of their animals very well, especially cattle. So it makes our... Uh, work easy because they know how they the type of feed type of season of breeding all these things they know it so they help us like very good any problems with drought for feeding the cattle? Uh, during summer yes especially in western Sudan so they have problems of uh, drought time and then they try to go uh, south to access to water and rivers there and then this is like years ago journey from west to south how long does that take month yeah, it takes months and then they stay all the summer uh, season there in, in south near the water and grass green footage for for their animals then come back the same journey to the west up to the west yeah. every year yes who owns the land that they go to i mean they own the land where the animals normally are but if they go to south yes that is the whose, problem whose land is it yes that is the problem exactly the, the problem between these rurals and the farmers because the farmers they don't want these animals to come to their land but the leaders of both uh, the farmers and the rurals and the farmers like making their uh, what we called in politics peace agreement but this from time to time yeah, uh, raise up these problems between the rurals and the, the farmers they solve it between like because this like historical journeys come from during se uh, summer season the rurals want to feed their animals so they go back they go to south and the south they look and they are a bit upset but yeah they work it out yeah they work it out what about sicknesses for the animals are they are they prone to diseases at all like animals here in australia get sick you've have vaccinated yes because we sudan is like has borders with eight or seven countries, seven countries now, I think. All these borders are like in eastern Sudan, we share border with Ethiopia, and they have their Ethiopian rurals uh, as well. They have their cattle, they come across borders. So, yes, like sometimes I remember we have like one project for all these countries. So... Each country commit to, to do the hard part in the project. At least we guarantee that the vaccination is the same time during the year we do the vaccination. So they have, they share this, this work together. 
so they can help the farmers and help the country. Cooperation. Cooperation, yes. You spoke about going out to help the rural women. What's their role with the cattle? Milking the the cattle, the cows. Just the milking? Yeah. Sometimes in South Sudan, like before separation, I have have had two journeys there, so the girls like feed them, clean them, do every single work, starting from dawn up to get rest between uh, 12 p.m. to one or two hours, and then continue again every day. The man on the the cows, but the girls do the the whole work. And how old are the girls? Between 12. To 30. Does that mean that the 12-year-olds don't go to school? Unfortunately, yes. I have seen many. They are just, this is their work. Is it because of poverty that they can't spare the children? They have to work to earn the money. They can't afford to let them go off to school? No, the schools are free. But okay. they, because they think this is their, their wealth, so they went special care they they just don't care about to to like the girls have education they care about their cattle have good care so this is their mentality does that mean that the girls don't have as many rights as the boys or it's just that the girls do the job better no the girls are strong as like they they boys but they, they, this is the culture. It's very hard to change it like quickly. But you feel sad when you see, I like, I, I felt sad because I see these girls 12 years. And in Khartoum, I find the girls 12 years. They are in school. They have their, like, they have their thinking to be like doctors, engineers, teachers. But this one way of life, just look after the cows, feed them, clean them. It's it's hard life. Can't change it. Like not easy. Yeah, not easy. Not easy. So that means that they marry a, f- a farmer. Yes. And it, and it continues. <laughs> yes, and it's better like the South Sudanese. It's it's very sensitive issue, the culture itself in South Sudan, because the wealth of the cows and the women are related to each other. The woman come with her cow. So when she get married with cows, so this is wealth. It's the same in many cultures, though, isn't it? Yes. It's a dowry. Yes, it, it's similar also if you talk about Sudan. It's similar in Western Sudan as well also. But, yeah, not just like typically, but you can find like uh, similarities. Would this be in all the rural areas around Sudan or are things changing for girls? Do you believe that those habits or those that culture will gradually change and that the girls will go to school? If they work on this yes, it, it could be change, uh, but in our countries like these African countries, I think you heard about the, how much they corruption are there and uh, we have many problems we have like development problems but if they start yes during the years I studied in the uh, like in the university m- many girls 
from the peripheral of the country. They came and they like work hard to stay uh, near the yeah, like uh, what we say. It's hard to find this uh, the typical image to to talk about this, but I think they struggled to come to the to her to woman study there and then they go back and then so they prefer to to stay the whole five years in Khartoum and then go back this is because they can't come and go during the years they can't get back during the holidays but at least they get to the university yes yes when did you learn or how did you become so good at english Do you think my English is good? Absolutely. <laughs> I think I'm struggling with the language. <laughs> Did you use that as university? Uh, yeah, but the university, like, just uh, you learn the terminologies, how you deal with the terminologies, because it's in English. But the daily conversation, I find it, like, hard, <laughs> a bit hard. <laughs> Did you stay as a veterinarian or did you try something different? In the Sudan? Uh, yes, I stayed, like, I worked as a veterinarian for almost 12 years. But then I changed my career. Here or there? Uh, I started in Sudan and then I continued here. And what was that change? To media and mass media. So I started, like, 2008 to write in newspapers. Why? I had enough of <laughs> From veterinary, so I, I think I, and it's my passion to write and talk and uh, discuss <laughs> was that, issues. Was that difficult to make that change? No, it is not. It's not for me, it's not, because, partially because I want to do that, and then I, I did studied a diploma in communication, and then... What jobs did you get? Was that easy to get a job? Yeah, it is not easy also. Because you're a woman or no? No, no. In Sudan, especially in Sudan, it's strange because <laughs> I never f felt that I have problem because I am a woman. Sometimes, sometimes there are, yes, problems in uh, the society, like put you in some like a spot that you have the way you talk the way you wear but here in your um, your mind your way of thinking you are free but yes to some extent some women have problems but me aziza i never felt i'm i have i have to do something i don't want to do did you work for a A newspaper or a journal or a magazine? Yes, since 2008. Yeah, I started in one of the the local newspaper in Khartoum, and then I stopped uh, in 2014, I think, before I came here. What issues did you follow up? Mainly political issues and then social issues, yeah. Was it difficult to follow the po politics with the... The governments, the governments of the country? It is, it is, because we have censorship policy. How difficult is that policy? Uh, it is very difficult because it works like this. If you wrote your article 
and then the editor-in-chief like make censorship first and then the um, uh, security man like in the press uh, department uh, yes do the other part so it's it's very hard so you find your article at the end as like have I wrote this this is not my article <laughs> This is not what I had written, so yeah, you find it very different from there. What topics weren't you allowed to talk about? Not allowed the triangle of religious politics, society. <laughs> so, you, you <laughs> so, so where does that leave you? What did you write about? You have to be very tricky and very uh, smart to like to use the words and to give hints of what you want to, the message that you want to, the people to understand or to read between you, between the lines. Can you give an example? Because I had been in South Sudan twice, two different journeys in two different times, I felt very sorry of when they, like uh, this, when they announced uh, separation and independence of South Sudan. So... I thought the problem is maybe, maybe, and maybe not because of Sharia laws, because most of South Sudan are Christians. And I found it, no, it's not because even after South Sudan independent, there are still problems between the tribes, the, big, the two big tribes in South Sudan. Although there's no Sharia law, there's no such issues in, in South Sudan. It's a bit complicated also when you talk about if it is an Arabic, is it Arabic problem? Because we have some tribes even in North Sudan. The Arabic is not their first language. So also they have their own issues. Like in Eastern Sudan, we have some tribes that they do not speak Arabic. So Nuba Mountains, they do not speak Arabic. So it's very hard to find what is the problems in country like Sudan. Uh, is it development process issues or corruption? Yeah. Were women's issues something that you concentrated on? Were you able to talk about, like before you were saying about the girls after 12-year-olds don't go to school because they're looking after the cattle. That in South Sudan. But in Sudan, like in North Sudan, it's no problem of the girls like uh, go to schools, but they have the problem of what they wear. And what is that problem? Like I can't, before uh, 2019, uh, because uh, things were changed now in Sudan, I can't go like without hijab, without cover my hair, and without long to cover my body. What happened to change that? Uh, 17 December 2018, yes. They changed the um, uh, revolution. The, the president, the Sudanese president, Omar al-Bashir, who governed about 30 uh, years Sudan, so stepped out. Stepped out? Yeah. Pushed out? Pushed out. You left in 2014. How difficult was that? You left your family, siblings, 
brothers, sisters? Yes, it's it's hard. Of course, it's hard. But when it becomes like a decision, that's no, you don't want to. You can you you find your your life like will stop if you stay longer. Maybe for normal life. <laughs> so you didn't think you had a normal life. You wanted something different. Not just different. Freer. Yes. You've now been in Australia since 2014. How difficult was it to enter a new country, a new life? Where, where was your first stop when you came to Australia? Armidale. It's New South Wales. And then I came to Melbourne after two months. And um, since 2015, yes, I'm living here in Melbourne. What did you hope you were going to do when you were here? Did mm. you want to be a journalist again? I am a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing a program in CCR. So, yeah, I'm doing my job as a journalist. Did you find a community here? When you arrived in Melbourne? Oh, Sudanese community, yes. There is a big Sudanese community. Not very big, like comparing to other communities, because uh, we came late, wave of Sudanese migration. The latest. Uh, A good, good Sudanese community. A lot of culture, events you go to, music. Yes, yes. Sudanese and part of South Sudanese events also because uh, most of the migrants of South Sudanese were being in Khartoum before they, they came to Australia. They share the culture of, of North Sudan. How difficult or easy was it to get a program here at 3CR? It's very easy and I'm very lucky. <laughs> Access to their website, 3CR website, and then it comes like very, very it's like a magic <laughs> because when I arrived in Melbourne and then I see the how like multicultural city is, I thought there is maybe there is or should be a community radio. I googled and CCR webpage, pop on, easy. Were the community stations in Sudan? Community radio in Sudan is very, is different, quite different, because they are working through projects. And the community radio uh, funded by the NGOs, projects like children vaccination, for example, or uh, girls education, or, or this. So they are just working for, for project and funded by the NGOs. And it's not, of course, 24 hours. The training and the, and like the recorders and these equipments, all funded by the NGOs, WHO or UNICEF. How difficult did you find the system here? The equipment we have, the panels we have, the, the rules and regulations of broadcasting? Uh, it's, it's very, it's amazing, of course, and... It's not just a community radio. It's a, a journey of change. It's not just the building and the... No, it's journey and um, the people like who are working, everything. And then 
the rules in the beginning it's um it's it's a bit hard because they expecting you to deal as a professional and put effort and to learn more and then they depend on you <laughs> what does your program consist of each week Basically, Nile show is for Sudanese women. It's like an interview Sudanese women and their journeys in life. So from Sudan to Australia, how they find things, how they cross a bridge of different culture, language. And we started with uh, 30 minutes every week and then now it's one hour. So... That means we extend that the people that we interview, the issues that we discuss. Who's we? I started, okay. And then uh, my friend, his name is Asim, uh, helped me to make the network of the people we interview. <laughs> yeah, like his... Uh, playing the role of the uh, producer. Right, so you do the interviews? Yes. Yeah. Do you find that the Sudanese women, some of them here, have problems coping with this new life in Australia? Yes, many of them. And do they tell you those stories? They are not very open about this, but they try to cope. They do not speak much about the, uh, these, these things. But they are trying. They are trying. Do they have work or they stay in a home? Some, some they have work, some they stay at home. Well, it's 2020 now. Where do you see yourself going? Have you been back home? Yes, maybe uh, this year. You haven't been back before? I haven't been back before, but maybe late 2020. Try to get a job. Or business, small business. Uh, yes, because here, my life now. Yes. What sort of business? Uh, maybe Me- related to medicines and yeah, human medicines, maybe. Are any of your qualifications recognised here? Your qualifications as a vet? Uh, it's, it's very hard because uh, I have to sit for another, like, qualified exams. Honestly, I don't want to continue in a veterinary career, but I'm happy to do the media program, but I don't think I can go back to veterinary, so... You're glad you came to Australia? Yes, I'm so glad. It's a blessed country. And thanks so much to Aziza Hussain for sharing her story with us today from Sudan here late 2014 Hi, I'm Jacob from the Friday Rave and I'm also on 3CR's Committee of Management Now, the community of passionate people that founded 3CR a long time ago made some tough decisions For a start, they committed themselves and a growing community of listeners to back their vision of owning our station and in doing so, remaining independent of the government and corporate influence. They did this by fundraising, brick by brick. 
with working bees, door knocks, on-air drives and all the rest of it. You've all been there. Now, their commitment has kept 3CR on air for over 40 years. That's a long time even in my life. But now, we need your commitment to keep this great thing going. Now, you can subscribe online at 3cr.org.au or phone us at the station on 94198377 or even stop me on the bloody street if you see me at some rally or other and ask me for a membership form. You need to become a member of Melbourne Radical Radio and subscribe. And it is 3CR, it's 5.27 and a couple of meetings coming up. There's one on Thursday, this Thursday the 12th at 6.30 at the AMWU building 251 Queensbury Street in Carlton. There will be the Solidarity for Venezuela. The keynote speaker is Daniel Gaspari from the Venezuelan Embassy in Australia and also trade unionists who recently returned from a visit to Venezuela and other solidarity activists. So they're asking people to go along and hear what Daniel has to say. It's Thursday, this Thursday, 6.30, AMWU Building, 121 Queensbury Street in Carlton. There are others at other places in Ballarat and Bendigo as well at the weekend. If you're going on to April, Saturday the 4th of April, there's a conference at the Multicultural Hub, which is 508 Elizabeth Street in the city, and it's focusing on the Kurdish freedom struggle and the ideas of Abdullah Ashalon. That's Saturday the 4th of April. It's organised by the Australians for, Australians for Kurdistan, and you can book by Kurdistan www.trybooking.com backslash capitals B-I-O-Q-P I'll repeat that bookings on www.trybooking.com slash capitals B-I-O-Q-P or you can email Australians for Kurdistan that's a, a day long conference on Saturday the 4th of April at the Multicultural Hub, 506 Elizabeth Street in the city. It's a conference, the Kurdish Freedom Struggle. I just think that it's ironic that the state of Victoria want to treaty with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites. War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons. Subscribe to 3CR, fighting for social justice and environmental change. The participants in the 2020 study tour to Palestine, a yearly initiative of APAN, Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, are back home in Australia with stories to tell. Quoting one earlier participant, It doesn't matter how much is read or seen on television, visiting Palestine and seeing the situation with one's eyes is without parallel. But one person with a particular story and experience is Kay Wenigal. Kay, how far back do we go 
for your story about Palestine? My ancestors were born in Germany and they moved to Palestine about the middle 1800s. And in the 1850s, there was a break away from the Lutheran Church and a group of Germans who then called themselves Templars decided to go back to the Holy Land. The Lutheran Church was way too strict and they decided to have a doctrine that was more in keeping with community values. So they settled in various villages around Palestine, as it was known in those days. Then in the First World War, because they were uh, Germans, they were declared prisoners of war and they were sent to Egypt and locked up for the duration of the war. In the meantime, the military used their houses for their own purposes and destroyed quite a few of them. But after the war, the Germans were allowed to come back and they repaired all their the villages and houses. Then in the Second World War, again, they were declared prisoners of war. And this time, no other country wanted to have them full up with other people. So they were sent to Australia. And they were sent to Australia as prisoners of war, but their passports were also marked as criminals. And so the Australians took them on. Why criminals? Uh, just because that's what the British decided they were. None of them were criminals, not one of them, I don't think, but that's what the British labelled them as. So they didn't get kicked out in 1948, they got kicked out before that? Yes. I think it was about 1939, 1940, somewhere around there. My parents and grandparents were living in Palestine at that stage. Were you told these stories when you were growing up about your ancestors living in Palestine? I was, and in fact there are a number of books written about Germans in Palestine. The Germans had quite great industry in all their villages. They started the Jaffa Oranges. They introduced irrigation into the desert. They created wineries, foundries and so forth. So they were quite industrious. And they got on quite well with the, the Arabs? Yes. Apparently they all got on really well, or relatively well. Um, there were Jewish people, Arabic people, German people, and, and they coexisted together quite successfully. And they just picked up their life and they came to Australia and... They had to start all over again. again they, yeah. they weren't given any reparation. They were just told to move on. They weren't allowed to take any valuables, no positions. They came to Australia with nothing. In fact, there was this amazing story about 10 years ago, the... Israelis, or about 20 years ago, the Israelis decided to do some restoration of the German houses throughout Israel, as they know it. And so they came to Australia and asked all these German people for photos of the houses that they used to live in. A story came out, my uncle, who was 103 years old at the time, had buried these gold coins that his father had got from Lawrence of Arabia in his house because... His family needed protection once they were moved as prisoners of war. So this architect, Danny Goldman from Israel, came to Australia, found out about that and then went back to Israel, went to the house, found out exactly where the gold coins were and took them out and now our family has those gold coins again. Oh, they've got them? Yes, they were able to (laughs) retrieve them. Then you've just come back from Palestine. Was it somewhere you thought about going for quite a while? I had always wanted to go there. My parents never did. They said it would have changed so much that they couldn't bear to see it. But I just felt that I had some connection there. I wanted to see it. And I also followed the plight of the Palestinians for quite a while. And I was 
pretty distressed at what I was hearing and I wanted to see that for myself. And you got in touch with APAN? I had been um, in touch with APAN. I'd heard um, stories from people who'd visited there and, yes, I'd been following them for a while. What was your first impression as you came over the border? I suppose just getting over the border, that's a challenge, It's a feat in itself and we prepared for it beforehand and we had quite a few discussions on how it would work. We had two Palestinian people, Australian Palestinians in our group. One was a a young male and the other was a middle-aged female. Derek was unable to get through the border. The Israelis interrogated him for four hours and he was a mess by the end of it. And um, he was turned away and had to go straight back to Australia pretty much. Why did they keep him interrogated for four hours? Did Did he tell you afterwards what they what they wanted of him? Oh, they were asking for all sorts of things. And in fact, they would come out and ask us questions to see if we could corroborate his stories. They just decided he, it's a racial profiling exercise. They decided that he was, you know, a young Palestinian male who could create all sorts of problems. And they were asking for Facebook and other social media activities. And they're moving him from one room to the next. They'd bring in other people to interrogate him. And they all had machine guns slung over their shoulders. It was a very intimidating exercise. Not a very good initiation to Palestine, is it? Oh, it's very, very scary to be standing and sitting out there for hours on end just seeing these young, they look like children marching around with machine guns. Well, they are, aren't they? They're, they are. What, 18, 19, 20-year-olds? Yep, yep. You've got to young. have someone, you know, look at them the wrong way and you don't know what they might do. Exactly, yeah. It's so, nerve-wracking. Yeah. So once you all got through, where did you travel to then? Pretty much went straight up to Jerusalem and were there for five days and stayed there and travelled to various areas from there. How did you find Jerusalem? Any older than you, and we were right next to the old city, so that, that was wonderful to just um, be able to go in and out of that area and, and have a look around. It's a very confusing city, I find. It's just made up of so many parts to it that I don't understand it at all. We're in the Palestinian area, and I love the food, and I, I love the area, but I just never got to understand all the zones and 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 how the city worked. You know, there were very new parts to it, which were obviously Israeli-owned, and then we got to see the Palestinian areas, and they were very poor and badly made roads and very poor services. And what is there in the older parts to keep the people alive? Like, is there any industry, or is it bringing food and goods from outside? Keeps them going? Well, there is industry within Jerusalem and there are a number of Palestinians that work in Jerusalem and they have to have special work permits to be able to do so. And again, that's another area that I get very confused about. There are like about a, over a 100 different types of permits that Palestinians need to have for various things. Even if you're a, an Israeli-Palestinian or Palestinian-Israeli, depending on how you call it, I, I'm not sure you're even a... I should be saying that, but that's what the Israelis call them. You have more privileges than other Palestinian would in other areas, but you still don't have the same privileges that a Jewish Israeli does. So you're based in Jerusalem for five days and you travelled out from there? Yes. Where did you travel to? Because it's a very small area anyway, isn't it, West Bank? Yeah, it is fairly small. That's right. It's only a few, few hours travel to various regions. There were quite a number of places we went to. We went to the Jordan Valley and saw people living out there and the circumstances under which they lived there, which are 
extremely challenging. We visited a, a family um, and they told us that they had their house knocked down 32 times in three weeks with about 15 minutes notice each time. So they just have these makeshift houses, put them back together again. This is in the middle of winter, freezing cold, wet, miserable. And then they kept knocking the, the house down. They closed the area off so the NGOs wouldn't know about it. The water rights are not available to them as they are for the Israeli settlers in the area. They're just living under extreme conditions. It was horrible to see. And yet, you know, they're determined to to battle on. It's their land. Yes, it is. Where else did you go? We went to Hebron. It was another challenging place. It used to be a very thriving town. Now it's it's a dying town. There's all sorts of um, poverty there. I think there's about 101 different checkpoints around Hebron. Palestinians can't go in and out of areas easily at all. If they do, all of a sudden there's a curfew and they have a couple of hours in which to, to get back home. And if they don't, they're locked out for weeks on end and they have to go and find somewhere else to live. If you told other people these stories, they wouldn't believe you, would they? That there's all these checkpoints and curfews that, in the you know the 21st century, that they're doing that to people in their own land. I know, and, and look, I couldn't believe it. I, I thought I thought I understood a fair bit and about it. I'd read a fair bit about it. I'd seen a lot of information from APAN, but seeing it for myself, it, it was gobsmackingly scary. On every single level, they're being attacked. You know, that you can see where there are Palestinian buildings because they all have black water tanks on them. And the reason they have them is because the Israelis just cut power off to them whenever they like, for as long as they like. And the same with electricity. They have no knowing when they're going to get their power or water back again. Getting in and out of checkpoints, you know, it takes them three hours to get to the same place as it takes an Israeli to drive 20 minutes. They're not allowed on Israeli roads in a whole lot of areas. Like Palestinians have green number plates and and um, Israelis have yellow number plates. Everywhere you look, there is this control that um, is quite insidious. Now, Hebron's a, a, a town or a city where the settlers have made a real big impact. Is that correct? They have. They've, they've made a significant impact. And, in fact, there was an interesting story. Our guide who showed us around Hebron, his father owned this little business. And, you know, it's, it's a, a building that seemed to be about eight metres across by two storeys, perhaps. And across the road, there's Gutnick Enterprises. And Joseph Gutnick is an Australian who's made a lot of money out of diamonds, I think, and gold. And he owns that building. He offered um, this guy's father, I think it was $6 million for his property. And then it went to $20 million and $40 million and finally he offered him $100 million for this tiny little shack. And, of course, um, everybody in Palestine refuses that sort of thing because they want to stay. It's their land. This is where they want to live. But for someone like that to offer $100 million for a property that is really worthless, you just wonder why that is. And then it turns out that he has a view of the Ibrahimi Mosque, or he would have if that building wasn't in the way. And that was his reason for for offering so much money. And the other interesting thing is that the mosque is divided into two sections. Half of it's a synagogue, and isn't it? It's, it's just terrifying what they do. 
Gutnick's put a lot of money into anti-Palestinian stuff in, in the West Bank and in Israel. Has he? Yes. See many children around trying to get to school, trying to get home to school. Yeah, yes, that, that um, quite a lot. And in fact, in one area, we were stopped by a car, and these Palestinians wanted to tell us their story that the the wall had recently been built through their area, and so the school that their children went to was no longer available to them unless they did this huge round trip through many checkpoints. And so the children lost their play areas, they lost their school, they lost contact with relatives and friends, and stories like that um, abounded all the time. And, of course, the children are at risk all the time, aren't they, walking to school, coming home from school? They are. That's the other problem with the wall, is that all of a sudden the communities that were safe communities aren't safe anymore. Another area that we visited was the military courts in Ramallah. That's a frightening concept isn't it the military courts it is for children it is you know i'm used to to courts here in australia you know they're they're quite salubrious carpeted timber woodwork everywhere you know a lot of dignified people running around in ramallah they're shipping containers and they're in very poor conditions and you know there's fences barbed wire fences all around the place and families are out in the open waiting for their children to have their cases heard Children who they mightn't have seen for quite a while. Children who can get locked up for six months waiting for the the court case. Often, you know, they decide to plead guilty so that they don't have to wait for the six months. It doesn't matter whether they're innocent or not. They just this is the the easier way for us, unfortunately. Did you actually go into the so-called court? Yes, yes, we did. What was it like? Uh, Ah, very confronting. I, I, I. it was probably the worst day of, of the whole tour. We'd spoken to um, the families beforehand and we'd heard the mother's stories. In this particular case, there was her youngest child was appearing and her three older children were already locked up and she didn't know why. And this was her youngest. And we got into the court and we were waiting for the judge. And the judge is actually a military person. It's, he's not a qualified judge, he's a military dressed in military uniform. And then he decided that we weren't supposed to be in that court, so we had to go out and we had to leave. We came back probably about 20 minutes later and sat down again for another case, and he didn't like that, so they went off for lunch, and we actually never saw a court case. I was surprised you got in there at all. I I am too, but I I was so impressed with the organisation of this tour. Everything... Everywhere we went, all the people and organisations that we saw were at such a high level and the whole study tour was extremely well organised. Did you get out into the countryside where they're picking their olives and hopefully they've still got an olive tree left? <laughs> Not really, no. no. We, we did see some, some olive trees, but actually when you're talking about trees, it reminds, us, it reminds me of time we went to Nablus, I think it was, and, and that area around there. The Israelis would tear down villages, just totally raise them, and then they would plant trees, not olive trees, nothing productive. They would plant things like pine trees. That was to stop the Palestinians from coming back and rebuilding their houses. And, of course, they do terrible things to the soil anyway, pine trees, over time. But they found out that they were quite a fire hazard, and um, and so they had to remove a lot of the trees. <laughs> they weren't quite as dense as they had been previously. But nonetheless, they achieved their aim. 
of um, keeping the Palestinians away from their land. Did you get a chance to spend time with the families? We did have some time with families, yes. To hear their stories? Yes, yes. In the Jordan Valley, we... We spent time. We had lunch with the, with a family there in Ramallah. We did in Nazareth. We did, um, and also in Hebron. It's really important to hear what these people go through on a daily basis, and they're not angry or vindictive about it. They they actually just want a peaceful solution. They just want to coexist the way they did a hundred years ago, the way they did when my my parents were there, and your grandparents, and my grandparents. Yeah. Further south or further north did you go? We went up to Haifa. That was the furthest north that we went. And we saw, again, we saw a village, a story about a village that had been totally destroyed and many, many thousands of people having to, Palestinians having to flee their homes. Did you talk to any UN people there? Because there are, well, they're vital, aren't they, the UN people helping the Palestinians and Australia aid? Organisations are they there? We did talk in Tel Aviv. We talked to the um, Australian consulate person, Chris Cannon. His name was and the Australian ambassador. He really towed the party line. I don't think that we got a lot of information out of him. But uh, you know, we actually asked him about the fact that one of our group had been turned back at the border, and he said that unfortunately that's the that's the Israeli prerogative that they have to protect their borders and he said he would look into it but I haven't heard anything since Were you taken to any of the refugee camps? Yes, we went to a couple of refugee camps, one was Bilato, that's had a lot of the refugees from Nablus and the surrounding areas in there, it's an area of about a kilometre, square kilometre and I think originally it had about 1500 people and now there's over 25,000 people there and they live in the most appalling conditions. When you walk between the buildings, there's, there's hardly space for a person to walk. They're high. There's very few windows. There's very little airflow. There was one tiny playground of about five square metres or ten square metres perhaps for the whole place. Uh, it, it was appalling. That's was like in the refugee camps in Lebanon too. You didn't go to Lebanon, did you? No, no, no we didn't. I didn't realise they were so bad in Palestine themselves. Yes, it, it was, again, it was something that I hadn't expected and uh, I found that really, really confronting. To, and, you know, we talked to a person there who had three bullets in his body, two of which can't be taken out and that's just a way of life for them. And he wasn't angry about it. He, it was just, he was quite factual and saying this is how it is and this is what we've got to live with. In a way, resigned to being treated like that. I, did, yeah. I didn't see any anger at all. But, you know, it, it takes me back to the military courts for the children. Often those cases are when um, children are throwing stones against each other. So Israelis are children against Palestinian children. Well, there's one court situation for the Palestinians and there's another one for the Israeli children. The Israeli children probably don't even get taken to court over an incident like that. And they don't get dragged out of bed at 2 o'clock in the morning. And that, that's exactly right. That's the, that's the other thing, that in the middle of the night, Palestinians are so used, and especially in those areas, Palestinian families are so used to having their houses broken into. And the Israelis apparently use this silent detonation technique where they just break open the doors, the front doors, silently, so the families can't even hear that. 
and they're woken up, you know, with, with machine guns and dogs in, in their faces in the middle of the night. And this happens night after night after night. At any time, there were people, there were women that were telling me that they don't sleep at night, they sleep during the day because of that. And you, you wonder about the, the impact on those children as they're growing up, yeah. the horror of going to bed at night, like you say, the mothers stay up, but children need their sleep and mm. the nightmares and absolutely, It's just horrifying. And I'm so surprised that the Palestinians don't react more than they do because... They should, in a way. They, they deserve to. They're being treated abominably, absolutely abominably. What did you see about culture in, a, in an occupied country? Music, a wedding, a funeral, a christening? Didn't see any None of that. None of that? The, we did go out at nights to some music venues, but unfortunately I was sick. I got the flu and bronchitis, so I wasn't able to go out at night. But they do like their music, and, um, and and there is quite a bit of it, at least around the Jerusalem area. And I think, you know, when you talk to to, to people, they in the villages, they do have a real sense of community and looking after each other and getting together and celebrating events. But that, talking about weddings and funerals, it's really hard. You ha- talking about the permits that they need, they need permits. They have special permits to go to a funeral or a wedding. And they're different permits. You just think of who devises all these things. Someone sitting in an office somewhere or a whole group of people just thinking, what else can we do to shut them down, punish them? Am, am I allowed to say this? I got the impression that this was a total mindfuck the whole time. In every single way, that's what the Israelis are doing to the Palestinians on every level. It's just insidious. And when you think that they're really concerned about the way they were treated in the Second World War. They're doing exactly that and worse over many, many decades to the Palestinians. Did you have any altercation or otherwise with any of the soldiers? No, no, we were told to stay right away from them, avoid eye contact. They don't try and approach you? No, no, they don't. Uh, Not on an individual basis. We were part of a group and so generally, you know, we had the tool leader to to talk to them. All right. Well, I'll ask you finally about your trip, a high point and a low point. A high point uh, for me is the fact that the Palestinians are resisting what's happening to them and they're determined to keep their land and to keep fighting. I think that's wonderful. I don't know where they get that spirit from, but I salute them. The low point was the children's court, the military court. I, I could not believe that... Israelis would do that to, to children. It was just beyond understanding. And they are young children too, aren't they? They are young children. I mean, the ones we saw were in their teens, but they can be quite young. And from there you went to Israel yes. to find out about the history of your family? Yes, I did. How difficult was that to do? Well, that was very easy in comparison to <laughs> the, the Palestinian tour. In fact, I travelled from... Jerusalem to Tel Aviv to meet the um, Israeli architect who was doing a lot of the renovations the German villages I did not actually see on the way, we took the train there any impact that, um, that, that the Palestinians were experiencing it's just such a different experience travelling in Israeli areas and not seeing what's happening with the Palestinians
And the Israelis, most of them don't know anyway. They don't. Uh, it was a bit unfortunate that some of the talk that I heard from Israelis about the Palestinian situation and how they feel the Palestinians are making the most of the money that's being sent to them. And I couldn't say anything, unfortunately, at the time, but I've, I found that very disappointing because they should know better. And we met a number of NGO groups that had Jewish people in their midst and they said that there are about 15,000 Jewish people that support what the Palestinians are doing. And so there are quite a number that do care, but not enough. And I don't think enough of them know and or enough of them want to know. So what did you find out and where did you go in Israel itself for the, the religious? That was the really interesting part. My father's father's house was in the military compound the main military compound in Israel, the IDF. It's the headquarters there, a huge building with a massive heliport on top of it, and I was asked to meet an, another architect there at the Bagan Gate, and the, I'd never heard of the Bagan Gate. Google Maps doesn't know about the Bagan Gate. It's, you've got to be in the know to know where it is. But we eventually got in there. They, they didn't want us to uh, uh, get admittance into the place, but um, this architect was able to get us in and we went to my f- grandfather's house where the gold coins were hidden and they're still starting to renovate that place so it was a bit of a mess and used as Israeli military officers. Just by chance I was talking about my other grandfather's house, my mother's father and I said I'd visited his house in Jerusalem and she asked more about it and it turned out that this house was actually in this military compound. His main house was in the military compound. It was a big house and the Israelis had, Israeli prime ministers had used it as their residence for political activities for many, many decades. And she had just restored this house um, to its former glory. So we went to see that house as well. Did they have property as well, like farming property? You say the Jaffa oranges. Did they grow the oranges, your grandfather? Yes. So the villages around Tel Aviv, there were about three or four or five German villages around there. And one of them that I visited was in Wilhelma, which is right next to Pingurian Airport. And it's been maintained. It felt like I was taken back 100 years in time because the houses are all heritage listed the properties are still in a rural area and, you know, apart from the made roads, it just looks like it, it could have been 100 years ago. So they had a lot of agriculture in that area, you know, olive trees and oranges and all sorts of fruit and vegetables. So that's where the Jaffa oranges come from? That's right, yeah. Is there anything else you want to talk about? I guess um, the the main thing I wanted to say was, you know, I talked about the, the mindfuck that, the, the Israelis are um, putting onto the Palestinian people. We talked about the water tanks. Um, we talked about the electricity being cut off. We talked about the roads that only the Israelis can travel mm-hmm. on and not the, the Palestinians. In a number of areas, there's the green line, which is the line that that's a demarcation line between Israel and, and the other territories. And the wall, actually, that they're building and have, have mainly built, doesn't follow the green line. It, it's actually 750 kilometres long, whereas the Green Line's about 350 kilometres, roughly. 
So in the middle there, there is this, these areas called seam, seam zones. And quite often there are farmers that live in those zones and so they will be on one side of the wall and their farm will be in the seam zone or vice versa. And so that means that they can't get access from one side to the other without permits. There are gates that are closed randomly for any period of time they like. And if they're closed for more than a year, the farmer loses their property because they're not using the land. So there are all these laws that make it so difficult for people to exist reasonably and they're being checked all the time and they're being harassed all the time. That's just another example of that. And now you're you're back. That's your sort of job now to tell everyone. I would love to tell everybody that I can because I think it's a story that needs to be heard. The Palestinian beg people to tell the story. That's what they want from people. They want nothing else. They don't want money or anything. They they just want the story to get out there because within the country nothing is happening. And thanks to Kay Renegal for her story about her time in Palestine and a little bit in Israel as part of the APAN 2020 study tour. Get onto their webpage, APAN, Australia Palestine Advocacy Network. That's all for me. I'll be back next Tuesday at four. Coming up, done by law. Bye for now.